This year we're studying through the Bible one book each Sunday. This summer we're looking at the letters of Paul in the New Testament. Summer is a good time for letter writing. Some of the best letters I've ever gotten were in the summer when Sherry was in Michigan and I was in South Florida. And every day one of the highlights of my day was going to the post office and putting in my letter for her and getting her letter to me. And uh, I love those letters. They were love letters. Not all that unlike those letters are the ones we're looking at this summer, from real people to real people. And these two are love letters. They're full of affection and care, written because Paul, the apostle, loved the church and spoke very specifically, very meaningfully, very instructively to the church. This month, we've looked at Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. These were specific places in modern-day Turkey and uh, in the northern part of Greece in that area. These were local Christians in a local church in different locations. We come to the fourth and last in this sequence. And it's the one that can kind of be forgotten. Galatians is so powerful describing how it's just Jesus by whom we get to heaven. Ephesians, all about the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and about discipleship and being built up into one body. And then Philippians. It's wonderful to consider all the joy and rejoicing that comes out of Paul's experience in jail. And what that has to say to us about our lives. And then we come to the book of Colossians and it can almost be an afterthought. Almost buried in under the other three. I'd like to reverse our thinking. Instead of seeing it buried under the other three, I'd like to say we're saving the best for last. Ephesians was all about unity of the church. Colossians is all about the deity of the Christ of the church. Ephesians was the body of Christ, but Colossians is the head of the body. Christ, who is the head of the church. Now, it's not a leftover. It's not a, an afterthought. It's huge. And the central phrase is the supremacy of Christ. We in North America have gotten really good at the centrality of Christ. We... We say, well, he's the center of everything. Well, frankly, there's a lot of other groups that say the same thing and they're not Christian. We need to do better than the centrality of Christ. And what's better than the centrality of Christ is the supremacy of Christ. You can have Jesus in the middle of a whole bunch of other gods and a bunch of other answers to life, and you do not have Christianity. But you put Christ as supreme over everything, that's when you've got Christianity. The last part of Colossians 1.18 says, So that in everything Christ might have the supremacy. That's the keynote of the whole book. In fact, follow along with me. Colossians 1, let me start in verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Those words were perhaps the first hymn of the early church. Those words were either written before and copied by Paul or written by Paul and used as a hymn, but they form a hymn of the early church. It's one of the most brilliantly constructed hymns you will ever read. It, there are ten declarations about the supremacy of Christ. The first five, verses 15 through 18, pertain to the supremacy of Christ over all creation. The second five, the supremacy of Christ over His church. Verses 18 through 20. Ten declarations as to why we declare the supremacy of Christ over everything. First, over the, the creation. Second, over the church. Why this enormous description of the supremacy of Christ over all things? Why? Because the church was in trouble in Colossae. There were forces coming against the church on three levels. There was one enemy that was coming through the Jewish community. There was a second enemy coming through the Greek community. And there was a third coming through the Oriental community. Let me explain. Through the Jewish community, there was the attack of legalism. Through the Greek community, there was the attack of asceticism. And through the Oriental community, there was the attack of mysticism. Let me explain those three words. All three say Jesus, yes, but Jesus plus. Jesus plus legalism is better. Jesus plus asceticism is better than Jesus only. Jesus plus mysticism is better than Jesus only. That is the attack that's going on inside the church in Colossae. Legalism is the belief that in order to really please God, you need to obey the things that God says. And through our obedience... We earn a position of greater favor with God. So it's Jesus plus the obedience to the law of God will give you more favor with God. That's legalism. Asceticism. You need to deny yourself bodily appetites. Go without food. Go without sleep. Deprive yourself. And by depriving yourself, you will add to the favor that God already has on you because of Jesus. You will gain a better standing with God through self-denial. That's asceticism. That's what the Greeks were teaching the church in Colossae. The third problem was mysticism. There were those that were attacking the church in Colossae saying, Jesus, yes, but in addition to Jesus, there needs to be the worship of angels because if you get angels plus Jesus, it's better than just Jesus. In fact, add to the angels 
let some angels be intermediaries between you and Jesus, and you'll even be more spiritual. And then add special revelations, special visions and dreams to Jesus, and then you'll really have an abundant Christian life. So it's Jesus plus all this mysticism. Do you see how those three streams were attacking the church and the purity of the gospel? And Paul says, good grief! You must not understand who Jesus is if you think Jesus is fine, but then plus Jesus, in addition to Jesus, you need all these other things. And so he takes Jesus and he says, he is the image of the invisible God. And he goes on and describes who Jesus is to show that you don't need Jesus plus anything if you really understand who Jesus is. That's the book of Colossians. God bless you. Have a great week. Oh, but I'm just getting warmed up. Yes, that's right. Okay. Okay. That's why I run, so I can be physically fit enough to be able to preach the whole message a couple times. That's all good. Okay. So, here we are. We like to get our arms around the book. Whenever we study a new book of the Bible, this is a letter. It's short. It's got only 95 verses. In fact, the good news is for the next few weeks, each book that we're studying gets shorter and shorter and shorter for those of you that don't like reading too much. If you've checked out and have already decided, oh, I'm not going to read through the Bible, let Fred preach it, I'll get what he gives us, and that's good enough for me. That's not discipleship, people. Discipleship does not allow the pastor to do all the, the, the grazing and the preparation. We do this together, and we, we're a discipleship church, so, so let's, let's get into this together. But for each one of these books, we like to get our arms around, and this one's a simple outline. There's four chapters. Only 95 sentences in the whole book. You divide up those chapters into two sections. There's the first section of chapters 1 and 2. It's the supremacy of Christ. Colossians 1 and Colossians 2 are all about the supremacy of Christ. Chapters 3 and 4 is all about living in submission under the supremacy of Christ. Don't you love it? I love it. That's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is just living in proper alignment under the one who has the supremacy. That's what the Christian life is. That's Colossians chapter 3 and 4. But since everything flows out of the supremacy of Christ, this morning we want to just unpack those ten functions, those ten titles, those ten roles that Jesus plays that lead us to say ten times, He has the supremacy. He has the supremacy. He has the supremacy. So now back to Colossians 1, verse 15. Number one, He is the image of the invisible God. The word image is the word in Greek, icon. In Greek language, it's spelled E-I-K-O-N. In English, it's just I-C-O-N, an icon. We're familiar with icons. You've got an iPhone, you've got an iPad, you've got a, a, a laptop, you've got a, a desktop, you've got images on your screen. Those are all icons. A Nike swoosh is an icon. The, the alligator is the, is the Lacoste icon. We're familiar with icons. The Tommy Hilfiger icon. Coach bags, I saw a few of them walk in this morning. The C, the dominant C. Bunch of C's, attractively arranged to create a, just a subtle pattern to say, C. 
coach. It's the, it's the coach icon. Now get this. Jesus is the icon. He's the only icon that is permissible. He is the icon, the image of the invisible God. Every other icon is forbidden. You must not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. Those are all forbidden. Why? Because there is one icon who is the image of the invisible God. There's only one place in all creation you can look to find God the Father, and it's God the Son, the image of the invisible God. Okay. Second, He is the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn is not a word used in this context for a beginning of Jesus, but rather a role that He fulfills. He is the firstborn over creation, which means He has the rights of the firstborn, which is the executor of the estate. So in all creation, He's the image and He is the firstborn or the executor of the entire created order. He's the firstborn over all creation. In other words, His image is stamped all over the place and He rules the place. Number three, He is the Creator. It says in verse 16, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by Him. It's just like it says of Jesus in John 1, 1 and 2 and 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and without Him nothing was made that, was been, that has been made. He created all things. Now, when you read Genesis chapter 1, you'd think God the Father created everything, and He did. But God the Father always functions as the triune God that He is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you read Genesis 1, it's very interesting because God the Father speaks, but the Word that He speaks that goes forth from His mouth is the Son. He's the Word. And when God the Father spoke, it was Jesus going forth out of the Father's mouth. And then you see the Spirit of the Lord brooded over the face of the deep in Genesis chapter 1. There you've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all involved in the act of creation. Nothing was created apart from Jesus Christ. So He is the Creator of all things. And then at the end of verse 16, it adds this phrase. They were created by Him and for Him. This is the fourth, fourth description of Christ. He is the owner. They're made for Him. Not only was He the architect and the engineer and the job superintendent and the one who created everything that we see, but He also is the owner. He's the one who gets to enjoy the place. Ultimately, this world exists for the enjoyment of God. 
That's what He created. It's, it's all here for Him. Every acre of land, every ounce of gold, every plant, every flower, every tree, every body of water, every conch shell, everything that exists is there for His enjoyment. Isn't that awesome? He loves the string beans and the tomatoes that grow in our garden. He loves the the sunsets as much as we do. Because He created everything for His enjoyment. And when you see all of life from that perspective, it completely changes the game. We're not at the center of this universe. He is. Hallelujah. See, we get to enjoy it by virtue of our association with Him. God, I know this is made for your pleasure, but you don't mind if I enjoy it with you. You see how different that is than, than thinking that it's all for us. And then we get angry and we, we get in fights because we don't get what, our share. But we get plenty. When you realize that it's all for Him. And it completely changes the game of an offering. What is an offering? Oh, God wants to take everything that belongs to me. No, it already belongs to Him. He's the owner. It's all for Him. And He asks us to honor Him with a portion of what we're stewarding and managing otherwise. He's the owner of everything. And the fifth, He's the sustainer. This is so incredible. When it comes to creation... Listen to what it says in verse 17. He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. All things hold together because of Christ. Now I want you to realize that the platform I'm standing on would dematerialize if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus is holding it together. The seat that you're sitting on right now would just would turn into ash. And you'd go plunk on the ground if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus is right now holding it together. Every, every system in your body would, would, would unravel if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus is holding it together. Now, I want to deal with this on the, on, the, on the mini scale. We talk about atoms with protons and neutrons and electrons. Did you know that the average electron spins in orbit at 10,000 miles a second? That's as long as, that's as far as from here, from Atlanta to Tokyo. Every second. The average electron is spinning so fast that it could get from here to Tokyo in a second. That's how fast that electron is spinning. But what holds it spinning is what we call the, the gravitational pull of the of that neutron that's that, that's at the nucleus that's holding it in its orbit. Now, we have rules. We call them gravity and centrifugal force and centripetal force. But the Bible here says that our laws of nature are really laws of God, and the real one who's holding that those electrons in their orbit right now is Jesus. 
And in any second, he could change the rules and he could, if he stopped holding it together, none of those electrons would be spinning in their orbit. He's holding everything together. Everything is being sustained by Jesus. And we think of, then on a larger scale of our galaxy and the earth and the other planets spinning around the sun in a perfect orbit. And all that goes into that. And it's Jesus who's holding our galaxy and all the other galaxies together. It's Jesus. He's sustaining. You think again back to the small. Now listen to this one. There are more water molecules in one drop of water than there are drops of water in the entire Gulf of Mexico. Uh, what, what, what did he just say? <laughs> there are more water molecules in every single drop of water than there are drops of water in the entire Gulf of Mexico. And he's holding every one of them together. That's kind of awesome. That's Jesus. And we think we can live without Him. What's wrong with us? Now, those five descriptions that He is the image, that He's the firstborn, creator, owner, sustainer. That's why we say He has supremacy over all creation. He's the image whose name is stamped all over the place. He rules the place. He built the place. He enjoys the place. And He sustains the place. And now we come to the next five. How He has the supremacy over the church. Now when it comes to the church, number one it says, verse 18, He's the head. He's the head. In fact, in the Greek language, you're allowed to double up on the pronoun. It literally says in the Greek language, he, he himself is the head. You're allowed to do it for emphasis. And it's a way of saying he and nobody else is the head. Not the pastor, not the pastoral team, not the elders, not the deacons, not the uh, whoever, the bishop, the archbishop, the pope. He is the head. Now what's the head? The head is the identity and the decision making. Now, I don't have time to to work this out for you, but you ought to spend some time this afternoon looking at how these five line up with each other. The five over creation and the five over the church. Because the the fact that the first one over creation is he's the, the image. He's the icon stamped all over this universe. And in reference, that's over creation and over the church. He's the head. Why do we love each other? To show that He's the head. Why do we worship together? To show that He's the head. Why are we in life groups? To show that He's the head. Why do we give to the poor? To show that He's the head. Why do we do everything that we do as a church family? Why do we care for children? Because He's the head. It all points back to Him. 
We want Him to get the attention, to get the credit for everything that goes on, because He's the head. The second, He's the beginning. He's the beginning. I love this. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He's the beginning, generally speaking, because Jesus began the church. When He died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from that point on, He's the head. But He's the head on a very personal level, because the only reason why I'm part of the church and you're part of the church is because it began with Jesus. One day back when I was a teenager, I met Jesus. And He was the beginning for me. And you could tell your story of when you received Jesus. And He was your beginning. He's the beginning for every one of us. It all started with Him. One day I met Jesus. One day I met Jesus. Let me tell you about the day I met Jesus. He's the beginning. And then, this is so awesome. Then this phrase is used again, but in an entirely different way. It says, verse 18, He's the head of the body of His church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now we've already seen over creation He was the firstborn, but that's a position as executor, not the firstborn of creation. That would be heresy. He's the firstborn over creation. But now He's the firstborn from among the dead. Where are you from? Oh, I was born in Montana. What does that mean? Well, I don't know what it means other than you were born, that's where you were born. Jesus was the firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? He was born from dead. And the first one. He's the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. He came from that place we call dead. And He was born. The first one to come out of that and never go back again. He wins. He defeated our arch enemy, death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? You tell him. He's the firstborn from among the dead. And the reason why we can today bury ours, our loved ones, is because He's the firstborn from among the dead. And everyone that we lay into the grave, we have the hope of their resurrection, just like Jesus was raised. Praise God. Now, we're only three in, and here's where it erupts. Here's where it erupts. So that in everything, He might have the supremacy. He is the head. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn so that in everything He might have the supremacy.
Nobody else deserves it. Now, Supreme. This is goofy, but the only time we use Supreme is when we're ordering a pizza. That's a lousy illustration. But I knew it would get your attention. How many of you, how many of you, when you, when you have a few extra bucks, you want to order a Supreme? You, you just, give me a, give me a Supreme. You know, sometimes pepperoni just doesn't cut it, you know, plain cheese. You just, you just gotta get the Supreme. It means everything. Everything on it. Would you listen to me? Jesus, you don't need to have Jesus plus anything because there's nothing you need outside of Jesus. You order Jesus, you get the Supreme. It's the truth. How many of you are going to go home and order a Supreme tonight? Well, i got a better idea. You can order one this morning. Trust Jesus. He's got everything. There's nothing you need that isn't in Jesus. He has the supremacy. You order Jesus, you get it all. That's what it's talking about. He's the Supreme. But there's two more. There's two more. Why stop now? Now, verse 19, for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. This is incredible. God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. You see, that's what we're talking about, the Supreme. There's nothing in God that is not in Jesus. I keep getting hit with these Holy Spirit-like punches. I don't know if I'm the only one, but it's like I'm getting schnockered up here or something. It's like, whoo! Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. The word fullness, Paul uses it 25 times, and most of those times are in Colossians. Fullness. That one's worth writing down, Steve. When you go to seminary, write that one down. You're going to know something that the rest of your buddies don't have. 25 times Paul uses the word fullness. It's right there. Here it is. His God's fullness dwells in Christ. And the most amazing thing, just I just got to go on. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. For in Christ all the fullness, there's the word again, of deity, that's of God, the fullness of God lives in Christ in bodily form. Even when Jesus came in the form of a baby, all the, everything of God was still in that baby. And now listen to this, verse 10. And you have been given fullness in Christ. That's more mind-boggling than how many molecules are in drops of water and in the Gulf of Mexico and all that. The fact that his, God's fullness is in Christ. Christ's fullness is in us. Praise God. And the fifth reason why Christ has the supremacy over the church is because He is the great reconciler. Verse 20. And through Him to reconcile to Himself, that is through Christ to reconcile to God the Father all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the reconciler. He is the one who is the mediator. Now listen to this. That's why 
oriental mysticism is wrong. It's not Jesus plus any other mediators. Jesus is the mediator. We don't need mysticism. We don't need any other other revelation from anywhere else. It's all in Christ. And this is why we don't need to deny ourselves bodily appetites, thinking that denying those bodily appetites will somehow earn more of God's favor. It's all in Christ who has already come forth from the dead. And it's why we don't need legalism or thinking that if I obey the law of God, I will somehow earn God's favor at some higher level. That's wrong. It's all in Christ already. Now, in many ways we could end right there, but I just want to do justice to the book very briefly. We've looked at the first half of the book on the supremacy of Christ. The second half of the book all flows out of establishing the supremacy of Christ over all of life. Once we establish the supremacy of Christ over creation and over the church, then we come to chapter 3. And because He has the supremacy, worship takes on a whole new meaning. And so it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is now hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It's worshiping. Why? Because of the supremacy of Christ. And then putting to death the big five. Verse five. Colossians three, five. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Why? Not to earn God's favor, but because Christ has the supremacy. You can now that He is the firstborn from the dead, you can now put to death those things that you never could have put to death otherwise. And you take off your old self, not earning more of God's favor, but because there is something better for you. Christ has called you to take off your old way of life with the deception, the filthy language, Lying. And putting on the new self. Putting on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. And over all the rest to put on love. Not to earn God's favor, but because of the supremacy of Christ over all things. And then it goes into our home life. Because of the supremacy of Christ, husbands and wives can love each other and get along and raise godly children because of the supremacy of Christ. And employers can be good to their employees and employees can honor their employers because of the supremacy of Christ. God gives meaning and significance to every level of life. Now, part of what Colossians says is this. Christianity is not a bunch of add-ons. Christianity is Jesus. 
And because of the supremacy of Christ over all of life, we can do better than low life, and so we can lay those things aside because Christ is supreme. And because of the supremacy of Christ, it's His life in us that enables us to say yes to God and to do the things that He's called us to do. And to love Him in our family and in our workplace, in our community, and to love others. And to not only love others, but to take seekers into the fullness of Christ. It says, always be wise, Colossians 4, verse 5. To be wise in your dealings so that your conversation will always be seasoned with salt so that you'll have an answer for everyone that asks you why you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It's all right there. Why? Because of the supremacy of Christ. Because of the supremacy of Christ, all of life takes on different significance. Because Colossians elevates in ten ways, any one of which would be sufficient. But all ten make an irrefutable argument for the supremacy of Christ over all of life. And so, as we respond to Him, it's responding in a way that's fitting, that matches His supremacy by our aligning ourselves under Him and to exalt Him. 